Hey, if you're, if you're uh, new or visiting, um, my name is Matthew, and I do not normally do multiple things on a Sunday. I do one thing, typically, um, but um, we needed someone to step in today. So anyway, it was, uh, it's really good to, to be here with you today to celebrate. Thank you for coming to church. Today was a really great day to just stay in your pajamas. I was looking longingly at my slippers this morning and thinking, like, would it be super weird if I just, like, still was wearing them like at 11 o'clock. Um, but it's good to be here with you all together. Um, I, really quick, before we jump into today's text, I just want to give you a little challenge. This is the time of year where people are asking these sorts of questions, making these sorts of plans. A year ago, um, I made a decision that I was going to leave the reading plan that I'd been doing, the Bible reading plan for a long time, where I'd I'd been using what's called the Revised Common Lectionary. It's the daily office readings that are in the Book of Common Prayer that people in churches all over the world read. And you end up reading a whole bunch of the Gospels and the Psalms and then uh, portions of other parts of the Bible. And I decided I'm going to just read through the Bible in 2019. I'm going to read through the whole thing. I haven't done this in a really long time. And I'm really, really glad I did it. And I want to encourage you to consider doing it, to, to actually say 2020. Some of you have never read through the whole Bible. Probably a number of us have never read through the whole Bible. And to just decide, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. And here's why I think it's so important to do. First of all, um, it's going to require you to read stuff that's really uncomfortable. And one of the things that we just tend to do um, is we just we insulate our stuff ourselves from from uncomfortable things. We just sort of like cl- close our eyes and like skip over passages. And when we don't understand something, we're like, ah, that's that's for other people to have to wrestle through. And I actually think that there's a gift for you and me in our faith in God, our relationship with the Holy Spirit, when we choose to read a thing that that confronts us, that doesn't sit well with us, that uh, creates a lot of cultural dissonance between us and the culture that we're reading about. And that forces us to ask questions of God, who is a God who loves questions, a God who loves answering questions too. But we'll never experience that or have that encounter with him if we're unwilling to wade through things that are a little uncomfortable. So I would just encourage you this week, with all the stuff you're thinking about doing in 2020, and there's a lot of good stuff to do, to make that one of your goals, to find a reading plan. You can spend three minutes on Google and find like 20 of them, and there's all different kinds where you read like just all the way through front to back, or you read chronologically, or you read a little Old Testament, New Testament Psalms every day, which is what I did. Um, I think the International Bible Society was the one who came up with my plan. Anyway, you can find something that works for you, and it'll give you like a track to follow throughout the year. Um, if you fall behind, you can catch up. Anyway, I think it's really valuable for us as we continue to try to open our ears to the Holy Spirit to recognize that God speaks in one of the primary ways that he speaks, uh, really the primary way that he speaks, uh, is, is, is with the words that are in this book. And the more that we're putting these words into our mind and thinking about them and chewing on them, uh, we open ourselves up to God to, to speak to us. So that's a little, I don't know, uh, that's not even a sermon. That's really more just like a, a plug. But uh, consider it. Um, we're going to be looking at um, Matthew chapter 2, speaking of hard passages in the Bible, uh, we're going to read the story of Herod slaughtering a bunch of innocent children. And um, it's the fifth day of Christmas. Um, so what we're gonna, I'm going to read verses 13 to uh, verse 23, end of the chapter, and then we are going to pray together, and then we're going to see what God has for us in this text. Now, after the wise men, the magi, had left, 
An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother by night, and they went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet Hosea, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. This was fulfilled what has been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go back to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. And then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of the Galilee. And there he made his home in a town called Nazareth so that what had been spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Let's pray. Uh, and Lord, we, as uh, Cole led us in a moment ago, Lord, we ask that the eyes of our heart would be open to see you, especially in a hard story like this. Lord, in a day where um, Lord, where we, where we really do need to see you, we need the real thing. Uh, we don't want to pretend. We want the real thing. We want our hearts and our eyes and our minds to be captured by you. And Lord, for that to stir real and abundant hope in us, that this season offers to us, that this uh, that this Christmas story offers to us. And so, God, we just acknowledge that a lot of us come in here today, we're kind of tired, it's been a weird week, it's, no one knows what day it is, um, and we're just, we just desire, Lord, to be with you and to learn and to come out of here closer with you, f- more filled uh, with you. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. When I first got introduced to the 12 Days of Christmas, I mean, not the song about birds, but, the, the, but the, the, the 12 Days of Christmas that the church had before that song came along, I was surprised by how... I, if you, the 12 Days of Christmas are a real thing. I don't know if you... Like, I know that we're an Anglican church, but a lot of us didn't grow up in Anglican or liturgical churches. It's 12 feast days that begin on Christmas Day and go all the way up to January 5th which is the night before Epiphany. January 5th is called the Twelfth Night, which is where Shakespeare got the name of his play from. It's, so we're having a Twelfth Night party next week, so wear your Renaissance gear. And um, <laughs> um, Anyway, so it's, but the thing that's really interesting about these 12 feasts is that all of them, no, many of them commemorate um, tragedies. The martyrdom of Stephen, which is St. Stephen's Day on the 26th, uh, the, the murder of Thomas Beckett, uh, the slaughtering of innocent children, the genocide of children in Bethlehem um, around the birth of Jesus. This is the makeup of the feast. So when you're like, today is the feast of the holy innocents, 
uh, which is the, 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 the feast that celebrates the passage that we're reading today. Technically, it's, today is the Holy Innocent Church feast in, in the Orthodox Church. Our, ours was yesterday, but no one cares. Um, today is, is a day where around the world the church is remembering this horrible uh, atrocity that happened right around the birth of Jesus. And it's very strange for it to be Christmas and, you know, the tree is still up and listening to Vince Guaraldi and, and, and sitting around a table and rem- remembering slaughter and genocide and murder as a way of commemorating Christmas. It's very strange. And yet it's very, it's very Christ- Christian, actually, um, because it's very honest. Because we must remember, as we've been saying for a, a month now, that Christmas is actually about a political upheaval. It's about God entering into a foreign land to do something about it, that there was incredible opposition to God from the very beginning. And so Christmas is this, this celebration that ultimately God triumphs and wins. Uh, as we read on Christmas Eve, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it, but the light does shine in the darkness. And so as we remember these things, what we, what we are kind of um, trained or, or encouraged or invited to do is to somehow fight to be a people who can stand in the middle of sadness and tragedy and sorrow and have great joy and hope at the same time, which is what our text is inviting you and me to do today, which I'll just say is really hard. It's really hard what, what we're trying to do here, to be people who are honest about the world and the suffering in the world and to not close our eyes to it, um, and yet who are resistant uh, and who fight for joy in the midst of it. So what we will see today is, I, I think that's exactly what this story, but what Christmas in general is calling us to, and certainly what the incarnation of God into a violent world calls us to as, as his people. So the first thing we see in this text is that Jesus uh, began his life as a refugee fleeing violence. That's how he begins his life. And of course, if you think about those words, if you just took away like the word Jesus and you would just put in there a different word, like a name you know, from like Somalia or wherever, from the Sudan or from... And this person began their life as a person fleeing violence, as a refugee. You would go like, oh, that's the story of actually 70 million people in the world today. That's the story of another man, woman, or child every two seconds of human history, there's another person displaced in our world, kicked out of their home, fleeing violence because of political instability, because they're in danger. And God chose, in a way that is truly uh, mysterious, he chose to actually make himself one of those people. That was the way he chose to come into the world. God chose to put himself in the center of human suffering, As a member of an occupied nation, Jesus never lived in a nation that was self-governing. He always lived in a place that had its laws enforced upon it uh, by Roman occupation, who used the threat of terror and torture to keep people in line. This was the world Jesus grew up in. In fact, there's a little village not far from Nazareth uh, in around 6 AD. So just a couple years after Jesus is born, there was an uprising in this village called Sepphoris. And Rome came in and did what Rome does when there was an uprising, when there was a sort of a peasant revolt. They came in and they slaughtered the entire village and lined miles of road between Nazareth and Sepphoris with the bodies of crucified men who had fought in this thing. And so Jesus, from a very early child, as a seven-year-old, as an eight-year-old, would have looked out his door and seen the lines of hundreds and thousands of, of, of rebels nailed to crosses and screaming, and that was the world that he grew up in. God chose to put himself in that place as one of those people. That was the world that God chose to make his own. 
And not just that, he chose to make himself a part of the working class poor. Jesus was raised by a father who we often call him a carpenter, and you get this idea of this sort of like craftsman, you know, like waxing canoes or whatever. But there wasn't a forest for 100 miles around Nazareth. Joseph was a stonemason. He was a construction worker. He was a person who used the materials that were available to him in the land. And Jesus grew up as a blue-collar worker raised by a blue-collar dad. Uh, trying to make ends meet. More than that, Jesus was born into a family with a scandalized woman as his mother. And not to in any way try to disrespect the Virgin Mary, but just to acknowledge that most of the people in that day, when they found this girl who was not married yet pregnant, they didn't immediately assume must have been the Holy Spirit because that's not what anyone assumes in that sort of setting. And Jesus grew up in that family sort of whispered about behind his back. This was the world that God chose to place himself in the middle of as a displaced person, a person who had to flee his own home. And then even after returning from Egypt later on, still was unable to return to Bethlehem, to his ancestral home, but had to find another and safer place to live that was further from the seat of power. And of course, Jesus, his entire life was spent as a persecuted person, sabotaged and betrayed, persecuted by his own people, his own countrymen, and then ultimately thoughtlessly pushed aside and persecuted and slaughtered and lynched by the state. It's just one more person getting in the way of Rome trying to keep the Pax Romana in the world at the edge of a sword. And this is the way God chose to do it. So if you were looking for Jesus today, if you were looking for a Jesus born today, you would not find him in a middle-class gentrified neighborhood. You would find him among the poor. You would find him in places that were violent. You would find him at places that (laughs) that very few people would want to live. This is how God decided to do it. He could have done anything. He decided this. And it's just insightful for us to recognize that, that Jesus begins his life this way, and this follows him his entire life. Esau McCauley, who is a person I love a lot, I got introduced to him at a conference um, last year that we held at Trinity. Um, He is an Anglican priest, and he recently uh, has become, this won't mean anything to to anyone, Uh, he's become the canon theologian of our diocese, which means that he's one of the people who's helping our family of churches think theologically. And he's an incredible person. I'm so, so grateful to, to be a colleague of his. But he had his first piece published in the New York Times yesterday, which was a really big deal. And um, because that's kind of a cool thing to get published in the New York Times. He wrote this article, which you can go find online. It's called The Fourth Bloody Day of Christmas. And in it, actually, I'm I'm just borrowing very heavily from Esau this entire sermon, just FYI. Um, (laughs) But uh, he talks about how if we were just to sort of begin by reading the headline, like if this was was a eulogy, if this was like an obituary that you read in a paper, the New York Times, the the New Testament rather, not the New York Times, the New Testament... um, they're very different, those two. They, the New Testament tells the story of a refugee. Just p- p- put this person in your mind. A refugee fleeing violence marked by political, fleeing a nation marked by political violence and being displaced within his own country, even after some of the violence settles down. And though he avoids murder as a child, he does not escape death by the state. But three decades later, an official of the empire pronounces his death sentence so, so as to maintain power and remove a threat. And that's just, that's, that's, that was Jesus. That's the baby in the manger. That's the wonder worker. That's the, the walks on water guy. That's, that's our king. That's who he decided to be. That's how he decided to come. Which reminds us that the kingdom of God 
as we see here in Herod, but always, the kingdom of God is always seen as a threat to worldly power. Earlier in chapter 2, the Magi show up, and the Magi were, um, they were stargazers, they were astrologists uh, and, and astronomers, they were scientists, but they were also people who found divine meanings in the stars, and they, from wherever they were from, and there's debate if they were Babylonian or if they were Persian or any number of things, but the, uh, the, the Magi appear, and there's not just three of them, by the way, they just brought three gifts, but there could have been a whole bunch of them, you know, it's like, and they weren't kings. The song is wrong in every way, but they show up in Jerusalem because that's where you would go because that's where kings are born. And they ask the very normal question of Herod. Um, we saw a star in the east. It led us to this place. We know that we're in Judah, uh, Judea. There must have been a king born, I'm assuming, in your household, Herod. Where is the guy that was just born? Like, that's what you would do. You would show up at the palace. Where is the baby that was just born, the royal baby? And it says earlier in the passage that we didn't read today that all of Jerusalem and Herod trembled at the question. Now, why did they tremble? Well, they trembled because they actually buy into the the view of power that the world buys into, which is that power is a zero-sum game, and so that all power is constantly under threat by other people who are seeking power. And so we have to hoard, and we have to be violent, and we have to be aggressive and defensive And all of Judea and all of Jerusalem trembles at the thought that there could be some sort of a competition. The kingdom of God is always viewed this way by those who have that sort of broken understanding of power. There's something to be hoarded. I was thinking this week about how that even shows up in our churches. You know, a lot of times, this isn't like something we like to talk about, but like churches and pastors, like we can become very competitive people. Like we're all trying to like, like run smoothie stands in the same neighborhood as though like, um, like what we need to do is keep people from other smoothie stands and come to ours as though like that's the point. And again, like that's just a broken understanding of power. That's this idea that like what God does is he gives people um, opportunity for influence and then therefore you need to hoard it and you need to use it against other people. And we should be, as the church, we should be the people who are most championing those who are in our community who are doing good work even those of us who we might slightly disagree with theologically or, or we might even like wildly disagree with theologically in some ways, but they're doing good work. There's a story in Luke chapter 9 where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, we saw a guy and he was casting out demons in your name, but don't worry, Jesus, we stopped him. And I love it because it was like, there's so many stories like this in the New Testament where like the disciples show up and they're like, aren't I a good boy? You know, and they're just waiting for Jesus to, to, to and he says, he's like, you can leave them alone, you know. If they're not against you, they're for you. Now, how, think about that. Do I, I mean, if they're not against you, they're for you. And you can just actually be a person who champions and supports and prays for and fights for and believes in the goodwill and the success and the flourishing of even the people who some of, you know, some of the, our, they left our church and they went to that church. Like, if anything, we should be the first people who are actually choosing to seek the good and to fight for the flourishing of all other people. Because, because we have a different view of power than the way that the world understands, understands power. We're not threatened by it. We don't need to be because we actually understand all power comes from God. He does with it what he wills. What this story, though, more than anything, this story of the innocence, it calls us to consider the moral cost of a perpetual battle for power. And in this case, as is usually the case, it is a battle in which the poor tend to have the highest casualty rate. The kingdom threatens power of 
the powerful in two ways. If you, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, which is the other place where we have a lot of birth stories around Jesus, <coughs> um, it's, uh, every time people hear about what God's doing, they start singing songs. It's really cool. And the songs always have the same sort of theme to them, which is that God is here, and what he's going to do is he's going to dethrone, disempower the powerful, and he's going to empower, he's going to elevate the lowly. In other words, what he's going to do is he's going to come and he's going to, he's going to right the scales. He's going to bring justice. So it makes sense why, with your understanding of power, is that it is something that you hold on to at the expense of other people so that you can have say and sway over them. That's a very threatening message. The idea that God would come out and give would come and give power out the way that he so chooses in a way that is just and equitable, that is right and good. Um, that's an uncomfortable thing if you have a broken understanding of power. Which is, of course, why Herod does what he does. Um, it causes the slaughter and the genocide of untold numbers of little kids. Um, and there's something about this story that's so familiar to us it's like, it's like the story of Noah and the ark. It's just so, so familiar and even so like um, uh, tamed down because we've just heard it so much. But to just actually like visualize the story, like actually visualize the moment when the soldiers sweep through the village of Bethlehem and tear children out of their parents' arms. And we're meant to, we're meant to just be completely shocked by it and the fact that we aren't just tells us that we've just grown a little too familiar with certain things. This is an utterly terrible thing. This is, this is the fruit of a broken and corrupt version of, understand, of a power. So what are we supposed to do with this? How do we respond to this? And what do we do with this story? Um, it's, I mean... What do we do with this? Well, I think the story is given to us to, first of all, to remind us that this is how God chose to enter, and this is the sort of life that God lived as a human. But it is also, I think, meant to stir in us, and really all of Christmas, um, that what there is in the face of this sort of suffering and violence is a hope that is larger than the suffering and violence, that is deeper than it. And there's a mistake that a lot of us have made, at least I'll just say that I've made. And the mistake is, is believing that, um, that actually ignorance is bliss. And I, of course, that's a, that's a cliche, but we, we do believe it a good bit. We, we don't actually want to know what's, we don't really want to know what's going on because we think that we couldn't possibly have happiness. We couldn't possibly be a positive people if we really knew just how dark things are. And so we just sort of insulate ourselves in all sorts of little ways. Like we insulate ourselves to the human cost of the clothing that we, we buy, you know, super cheap through fast fashion. We, we insulate ourselves to the human cost on the groceries that just magically show up in our grocery store. You know, no matter what time of year it is, there's always avocados. No matter what time of the year, there's always bananas. Like to, we don't think about these things. We don't think about the environmental impact. We don't think about the human impact. We insulate ourselves from the, the, the human trafficking network that is literally right under our noses in this city and, or from the massive homeless epidemic in our city and cities around 
the country or the fact that 40% of, of homeless youth right now are, are there because of they're LGBTQ and they've been kicked out of their homes and they've lost their family. And we, we insulate ourselves from the, the, the unjust policing and incarceration of, of people of color that is disproportionate to the way that, um, that whites are, are, are policed and incarcerated in our country. We insulate ourselves from the several hundred thousand abortions that happen every year in our country, many of whom are, are, are targeted at communities of color and once again are, are, are particularly uh, pointed in, in places that are impoverished. We, we don't want to think about these things because we think that if we actually really go deep into them, what's going to happen is we're just going to become, you know, we're going to become those people. You know, those people that ruin every conversation and every dinner. We're going to become those people that, like, nobody wants to be friends with and no one wants to follow on Instagram because we're just always bringing up bad news because we're just those people. And yet here's the thing, and I just, and it's, for me, it's not just, like, anecdotal, although I could certainly give one anecdote after another, but it's just not true because if you want to find hope in the world today, you actually need to go to the places that have the most acute suffering. If you want to find actual joy in the world right now, I guarantee you, you will find it far more easily in a place that is, by our standards, a squalor than the sort of comfortable life that many of us get to live. And that's because that's the way hope works. Um, that, that's, that's actually what hope is. Hope is, a, is an act of defiance over and against the knowledge of suffering. It's the belief that something is greater and more powerful than the suffering. And as long as my hope is only as large as like the next circumstance getting better, I'm, well, it's just not very powerful. The happiest people I have met in my life, and this is without, without question, the happiest, most resilient, most hopeful people are the people who have suffered the most. Uh, they are the people who have buried children. They are the people who live in, on dollars a day. And there's something about that. There's something for us in that. Now, there is something, I think, I, I, as I was writing this sermon this week, I got very, very frustrated, mostly because it was taking too long, and it was Christmas, and I was trying to not work a ton, and yet I was frustrated because ultimately I don't have like, clear answers or a clear response to this. I don't, think that the, I don't think the solution to this idea that actually hope is most acutely found where actually suffering is most acute. I don't think that there's something about that that therefore we should become like storm chasers, essentially. People who go about like looking for life to be miserable. That's, that's, not the, that's not the call. We have to acknowledge, though, that one of the benefits of being a people who by and large have fairly privileged lives is that we... We get to live in a land of metaphor. We get to have Christianity and faith and spirituality and hope. We get, they get to be like sort of just like ideas for us, like immaterial things for us. They're not actual. They're not material. They're not rooted in anything. And the thing is, is when you go to a place that is truly, um, when you go to a place like Bethlehem the day after a raid, their, their, their hope is, is, is not in the sort of shallow, immaterial things that some of us, that, that, I, that I tend to find hope in. It's in an actual God doing something actual about this. Something actually coming in and raising these kids from the dead. Someone actually reversing the fortunes and toppling this corrupt um, power monger of a king. And that is actually, I think, what Christmas is meant to stir in us. is a hope that grows stronger and brighter the more we lean into the darkness around us. 
that doesn't close our eyes to it, that doesn't try to inoculate ourselves from it, that doesn't seem to distract ourselves, and yet I just distract myself in so many ways all year long. Little things that keep me from actually recognizing that we live in a world in which we actually need a king to come. And if, if you and I don't have in our imagination or in our awareness that need, which a lot of us don't, again, I'm putting myself in the, cent- in the front and center of this. There are people for whom the words like joy to the world, the Lord has come, that means something. It's not just a sentiment. It's not just a Christmas thing. It's not just like a nice thought. It's not just like joy to the world, Amazon has come. It's like someone has actually come to do something about this world. God is here. He's put himself in the middle of it, and he's not going to stop until he fixes it. Which is, of course, what Christmas is ultimately pointing to, that Jesus was born into a violent world and suffered violence his whole life, but the reason he was here was to empty the power of violence and death and injustice. And that's what he accomplishes. That's what he does. It's what we celebrate here in a minute that ultimately we do have hope. And the reason we have hope is not just because we're like, think good thoughts and try to be positive and do your best and root for everyone. No, it's because we believe that actually the power of death has been emptied. The power of injustice has been emptied. It's been emptied out on a person who took it and then stood up from a grave. And that births real hope in us. Hope that can be resilient, that can fight for things that matter, that can not give up, that can keep the main thing in front of us. And this is what I think you and I are meant to do with this strange story, is to seek to be people who have that real hope growing in us over the course of this year and settle for nothing less. Why don't we stand up together? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.